0: My brothers and sisters, it is widely held that the Apostle Paul was one of the most prolific writers in all the Bible. His letters, known as the Pauline Epistles, make up 13, as you know, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He wrote these letters within an 18-year period while he was on his missionary journeys, his various missionary journeys. The first nine epistles were addressed to various churches in Greece and in Asia Minor. The last three were pastoral in nature and were addressed to church leaders Titus and Timothy. Paul also, as you will recall, wrote a personal letter to a Christian convert named Philemon. Paul wrote for various reasons and various occasions, covering subjects such as exhortation, commendation, personal defense, warning, doctrine theological, deep theological matters. He wrote for these reasons and occasions, including some others. There is a debate among scholars as to which of his letters was written first. There's, There's a healthy debate among scholars about that. Some contend that Galatians was first followed by the letters. To the Thessalonians, while others believe it was the other way around. The Thessalonians was first, and Galatians followed not long after. Either way, 1 Thessalonians is one of, if not the earliest writings that flowed from the great apostle's pen. First Thessalonians believed to be have written believed to have been written somewhere between uh, A.D. 50 and 54. It is then in this early Pauline epistle that we will spend the next five weeks as we examine one chapter each week with a view towards finding out what Paul has to offer on the subject of hope in hard times. Today. Today, we will be taking a look at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. But before we get there, I'd like to set the stage by covering a little background. Would you allow me to do that? A little background before we get to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I'd like to cover a little background first on the city and then a little bit on Paul's time there. The city of Thessalonica was founded somewhere around 315 B.C., on or near the ancient town of Terma. It was founded by a man by the name of Cassander. He was a man, but his name was Cassander, a general under Alexander the Great, and later king of Macedonia. The city was named for Cassander's wife, Alexander's half-sister. Her name was Thessalonica. I have a trouble. Y'all pray with me today. Because that, that just doesn't roll right off my tongue. So if I mess it up all day, just be praying with me. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The, 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 the city's name is the same name as this lady. <laughs> Y'all, right? Y'all know the name of that city, right? Do I say it again? I'm going to say it again a lot. So just, get, just help me and pray with me for that. Uh, she, she's the daughter of Philip II of Macedon. Uh, the city was located on the head of the Termaic Gulf. The best... Natural harbor on the Aegean Sea, wonderful thriving harbor there. In 146 BC, uh, the city became capital, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, and its population then rose to over 200,000. Today, it still exists, and today it is called Thessaloniki and is the second only to Athens in all of Greece in size and importance. Today, the population is well over one million. Uh, Back in ancient times, the main street of the city was part of the very road which linked Rome with the east. The road was known as the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. East and west converged on the city. It was said to be in the lap of the Roman Empire. Trade poured into the city from the east and the west, making the city very wealthy and prosperous. As it relates to its role uh, in the spread of Christianity, William Barclay says of the city, he says this it is impossible uh, to overstress the importance of the arrival of Christianity in Thessalonica. It, if Christianity was settled there, It was bound to spread east until all Asia was one and west until it stormed even the city of Rome. The coming of Christianity to the city was crucial in making Christianity a prominent world religion. Which then brings us to Paul and his time there in the city. The events of Paul's visit, by the way, are covered in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. You'll have on the screen verses 1 through 10, but I'm going to read through verse uh, 14. Uh, These are the events that cover Paul's time in the city of Thessalonica. I want to read it for you, and you can read it with me. It'll be on the screen, part of it anyway. here's what it records in Acts chapter 17 says this. Now, when they had passed, by the way, let me just give a little context even to this. 17 comes after 16. That's breaking news. And you'll remember that in 16, Paul and Silas had been forbidden to go where they wanted to go and they get a vision calling them to come over to Macedonia. They end up in the city of Philippi, thrown in the inner prison, and round about midnight. Somebody say amen. 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 They were praising the Lord and singing songs, and an earthquake came, shook the foundations of the prison. They were freed along with all the prisoners, and now we make our way to 17. 17 says this. uh, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and providing, uh, and proving that it was necessary for the for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead. And saying, "This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ." And some of them These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I like that. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you as it relates to Jesus? Turn the world upside down. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed uh, when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, And the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, this is the part that's not on the screen. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Uh, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Amen. That is the record. Paul's contentious time in the city of Thessalonica uh, and what happened there. Paul visited the city. Here's what happened on his second missionary journey, on which he was accompanied by Silas and Timothy. Uh, In the Acts account, which we just read, uh, we see that Paul may have been in the city for as short of a time as three weeks. He may have only been there for three weeks. Since the text mentioned uh, that he teach, taught rather in the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath three times, would suggest that possibly he was only there three weeks. Could have been longer, but it's possibly as short as three weeks. Some of the Jews in the local synagogue Uh, But even more Greeks and a number of the leading women believed Paul's message. Some of them did and were converted. But the majority of the Jews were jealous. We just read and they stirred up a mob which rioted. Paul's host in the city was a man by the name of Jason, and Jason was forcibly taken from his house along with some of the other brethren. Jason somehow made peace with them, and Paul and his companions were forced to leave the city, at which time he went then to Berea. This was not enough, though. In the part that I read to you that wasn't on the screen, it was not enough for the Thessalonian Jews. Uh, who then followed Paul, wasn't enough of them to chase him out of the city, they followed him to Berea and kept causing trouble until he was forced to also leave Berea. Paul then travels to Athens Didn't read that part, but that's what happens next. He travels to Athens. It's recorded later in chapter 17, and he stays in Athens for a time. You remember the story of how Paul, when he arrives in Athens and he's wandering around and he sees uh, some things that disturb him. The text says that he makes his way to the Areopagus, and the philosophers and the Stoics and all of those who thought themselves wise came and questioned him. And he says to them, I was wandering around, I'm paraphrasing, and I saw that you had a statue to the unknown God. On Mars Hill is where he gives this message. And he tells them about his God, who is not only known, but who is over all things. And after he delivers his message, on Mars Hill in Athens at the Areopagus. By the way, I've been there and stood in that very place. Just a moving place to stand in and know that Paul stood there and delivered that message. He then makes his way to Corinth. Makes his way to Corinth after he leaves Athens where he apparently writes the Thessalonian letters. while wow. in Corinth. Which brings us then to the letter and the occasion For the letter. Paul is now ministering in Corinth, but he is very concerned about the young church in the city of Thessalonica that he had uh, that he had and and, and and he had to leave so abruptly. He's concerned about what's going on there because he was rushed out of there and he's concerned about them. They are so new to the faith, so young. Under severe persecution, first from the Jews and now from the Gentiles, will their faith, here's the question he has, will their faith survive or will they buckle under pressure? He is concerned about this young church. So what does he do? He sends Timothy back to the city to encourage the believers and he orders him to come back with the report about how they're doing. So Timothy returns with both good news and not so good news. The good news was uh, that the affection that they had for Paul was still as strong as ever, and they were standing fast in their faith. Paul, when getting this news, is relieved, and the text says in 1 Thessalonians that he is full of joy because of this good news. But there was also some concerns, some things going on that, Paul, that Timothy reported about that concerned Paul. Some of the things that were happening also in the city were uh, some had stopped working while awaiting the second coming of Christ. They decided that it did them no good to continue to work and do normal daily things. They were just going to stop all of that and wait for Christ to come back. Uh, Some were worried about those who had died before the second coming of Christ. What would happen to them? Uh, There was the threat of them relapsing into immorality. There There was some who were slandering Paul. There was some division also noted by Timothy in the church back in the city. So Paul's purpose in these letters, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, is to encourage the new church through persecution, assure them of his character and love for them, and to provide some correction in areas where they needed it. As we begin our time then in 1 Thessalonians, by examining chapter 1, we'll see that Paul opens this letter with two things, praise and commendation, praise and commendation. He'll deal with the concerns and the rebuke later, but in chapter 1, he opens it with praise Commendation. So I know you've been waiting, so let's go ahead and we're there now. Let's read it. No, you're sitting out there saying, Are we gonna actually read some of this stuff? Yeah, we are. Would you turn in your Bibles with me? The first Thessalonians, and you certainly are welcome to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. First Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 10, or all of chapter 1. Here is what it says Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas by the way, and Timothy forth from you in Macedonia Macedonia and Achaia but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need to say we we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who believes, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Uh, You may be seated as we examine this passage. I'd like to lift this theme today. The triad of triumphant Christian living. The triad of triumphant Christian living. Um. Paul begins this letter to the Thessalonians, uh, like most of his letters, with a salutation. With the declaration of authorship, a, a, a clear uh, description of who the recipients are, an acknowledgment of his position as God's servant, and a blessing. He opens most of his letters uh, this way. In fact, it was a Greek custom Uh, that letters be opened this way, Paul shifts it and changes it a little bit. His custom is to open his letters this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are noted in the opening salutation. These three senders constitute the apostolic church planning team that founded the church there in the city. They were the ones responsible for planning, founding the church. It is fitting That these three address then the believers there. Although Paul is likely uh, the primary author of the letters, uh, he acknowledges those that are with him. And then after the salutation, the typical Greek letter of the time would, would contain a short blessing. And we see it in the text. Greeks would typically write favor, grace to you. Jews would typically begin shalom, peace to you. But Paul's characteristic greeting combines the two. And Paul says grace and peace. In 2 Thessalonians and later epistles, he amplifies this even more. He says grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, by this, Paul means more than either the Greek Or the Jewish blessing alone, the way he does it, has more substance. While the Greeks would wish good favor to the recipient, Paul wishes God's grace, God's unmerited favor for which we have been all saved. While the Jews would extend a wish for peace, Paul extends a wish for both grace from God and the peace with God that comes only through Jesus Christ. How many of you know that that is the only place that we get true peace from? It's only found. I know that we search high and low for it in all kinds of places uh, but I have come to the place in my life that I am convinced, I am persuaded that true peace that lasts only comes through Jesus Christ. Uh And so then, while the Jews would extend this wish, uh, he extends this peace that only comes through Jesus. Paul's blessing was truly steeped in the gospel and Christianity. Uh, After then, his salutation in verses 1 and 2, he moves on to commendation. In verses 3 through through 10, he, he, he moves on to commendation. Uh, in verse 3, Paul commends them in three areas which are essential ingredients of the genuine Christian life. Paul's three, these are Paul's three favorite ingredients to highlight throughout all of his writings. It is what I'm calling today, and others have likely called, is not, is not a, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't come up with this, but it just struck me that um, not original is the word I was looking for. Uh, it's been said before, but we'll call it today his triad of triumphant Christian living. Uh, here it is. Faith, love and hope. It, it, it's, it's Paul's triad. These three come up time and time again In Paul's writings, they're found in Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, and in Paul's letter to Timothy. We find this triad mentioned by Paul. Uh, Author and commentator Scott Swain says... That these virtues are subjective dispositions, or qualities of character that rightly orient us toward objective realities, namely, God and all things in God. They are profound and, and, and they are a profound and biblical summary of the moral direction of the Christian life. These three virtues, Paul's writing. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, show how uh, the three virtues connect together. Here's what he writes in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. He say, he connects it all together this way. He says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He puts it all together right there, doesn't he? quite beautifully, he puts this triad in perspective for us. So, we could certainly learn a valuable lesson from the Thessalonian church who Paul commends for exemplifying this triumphant triad as we celebrate this four-year anniversary. And we look forward to however much longer the Lord will allow us to be here, uh, we would hope it would be a long time as we await his second coming as those that were a part of the church at Thessalonica were doing. Uh, we're not going to stop and sit down and wait, but we eagerly await it. But as we do, then uh, we, we, we look to that and we could learn from what they were doing. Because he commends them for exemplifying this triad. We ought to Purpose in our hearts, Brother John, that as we walk out the call that God has for us here at 504 West 32nd Street. In Tyler, Texas, God's country, USA, 75702. That's a good zip code. That's zip code I was born in, 75702. That we would purpose to live out the triad that the Thessalonians did, faith, hope, and love ought to be what we're about. We could learn from them. Let's see what we can learn from them. Uh, we can learn that from them. Let's, see, let's, let's go a little deeper and see exactly what it is that we could learn. Uh, first thing he says in verse three, he talks about this, the work of faith. What's going on with that? The work of faith. What is that all about? Well, it can be defined this way. Conduct produced by allegiance to Christ. Conduct produced by allegiance to Christ. Uh, We see in the passage, we see the results of this characteristic in verses 5 through 8. And again, at the the end of verse 9, here's what it says in 5 through 8. It says this. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake and you became Im- imitators of us and to the Lord. Conduct that they expressed conduct that they expressed because of their, their allegiance to Christ. You became imitators of us. You re- Look at the end of verse 9. It says this, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a great illustration of what the work of faith looks like. It is the conduct that we express uh, that that emanates from within because of our allegiance to Christ. That what is happening on the inside can't help but to manifest itself on the outside. That, that, that's what the work of faith looks like. Uh, Paul says it this way in Galatians 5 verse 6. He says this, for in Christ Jesus, neither, uh, neither circumcision nor, nor unc- uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then James, you know how James breaks it down. He says this in chapter 2. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it did. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith drives us to work. It, it, It should. Our faith ought to drive us to work. It drives us to serve God wholeheartedly. True belief in God will push us to work for him with our brief days on the earth before we enter eternity. Our faith ought to not let us sit still. Faith ought to drive us. Faith Working itself out in action is a basic component of life in Christ. We should follow the example then of the Thessalonians who held true to their commitment to Jesus, even in the face of tremendous persecution and temptations. They held true, and their faith led them to work. Some of them. Some of them decided they were not to do nothing. So Jesus came back. <laughs> it ought not be us as we enter year five. We ought to have a desire, our faith ought to compel us to work for the Lord. Then he says this not only your work of faith, but then he says this your labor of love. Well, what's going on there? Simply put, it simply means this hard work for others generated by love for them, and I'll add this prompted by love for Christ. It, that, that, that's what it looks like. Hard work for others, generated by love for them and prompted by love for Christ. Uh, we see the results of this virtue in verse 9. The first part of verse 9 says this. I read the second part earlier. Let me read the first part. It says this. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of uh, reception we had among you. The kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned that they received them with love. They received others with love. They expressed this love to others on their behalf, and they served God and others in their daily course of doing things. They were committed to the labor of of love because Paul had given them the ideal example of what labor of love looked like. He points it out to them all throughout the letter of how he served them while serving the Lord. And that's what laboring in love ought to look like. John uh, in, in, in Revelation mentions it when he's dealing with the seven churches He deals with it in chapter 2 when he's talking about the church at Ephesus. Here's what he says in Revelation 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned or left Your first love. Here it is. We we don't ever want to labor uh, so intently and and, and have such uh, uh, unawareness that we leave our first love. Our labor ought to be tied to our love for our neighbor and namely our love for God. And all of that ought to fit together. And if I have love for you, It'll show itself in how I treat you. It'll show itself in my labor for you. It'll show itself in my labor. Went to the disco. Okay. It's all right. Let me do a. And my labor for the Lord will show itself in my labor for you. Because it's steeped in, it's founded in my love for him. And it's what the labor of love looks like. And Paul commends the Thessalonian church because to this point, they haven't left their first love. They haven't left their first love. Uh, N.T. Wright said this about love. He said, love is not our duty. It is our destiny. Love is the language they speak in the new creation And here it is, we get to learn it here. Are you learning it? Are you learning the language? That's a question I need an answer. Are you learning the language of love? We get to learn it right now. And and, and if we're learning it properly, somebody ought to be able to hear it from us. I'm not talking about audible hearing. I'm talking about being able to realize our love for them and how we treat them. Y'all better realize it. We're learning this language right now. And Then he moves on from there. He says the work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness in hope. What's going on there? Steadfastness in hope. It's this, it's this, endurance that stems from hope in Christ. Endurance that stems from hope in Christ. Uh, We see the result of this virtue in verse 10. Let me read verse 10 again for you. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul commends the Thessalonians for being steadfast in their hope. What then is their hope? What is their hope? Uh, I believe their hope is the same as ours. That all of Christ's promises to his believers will come to pass. That all of his promises will come true. Paul centers, though, on two future realities in verse 10. Salvation from God's wrath and resurrection of the body. When the Thessalonians turn to God, he says, they begin to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If we have this kind of hope, hope for the future, for future salvation from God's wrath and for coming bodily resurrection, we will persevere in the face of anything. We will keep hanging on to our allegiance to Jesus in spite of affliction, in spite of Adversity, in spite of tribulation, in spite of tragedy, in spite of heartache, in spite of pain, in spite of ups, in spite of downs, in spite of attack, in spite of being broke, in spite of being rich, in spite of all of this. If we have this hope, we'll hold on to it no matter what comes. My hope is built on nothing less. Jesus' blood and his righteousness, I, I, I dare not trust. The sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ. The solid rock I stand, because all of the ground, y'all help me, is sinking sand. The steadfastness of hope. Uh, we will keep hanging on to our allegiance in spite of all of this, if we have this Uh, Romans, he deals with it in Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, 24 and 25 says this for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. (laughs) That's the question. Are you waiting for the hope that's been promised with patience? Have you felt the wind beneath your wings that comes every time you get weary, every time you want to give out, every time you want to take a break, every time you feel defeated? Every time you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Have you called out to Jesus and felt the wind beneath your wings that he gives you by way of hope that should increase your endurance and cause you to keep on running to see what the end's going to be like? Hope is what he gives us. So then we can summarize. As we close, we can summarize the first chapter of this letter by enumerating the signs in the Thessalonians of the presence of the triad of triumphal Christian living. Here's some of the signs they receive of the gospel, which was presented with with spiritual power and miraculous manifestations. They imitated Paul and welcomed his message. They exhibited joy in the face of persecution. They became a model to others. They labored in love for God and for others. They turned from idols to the true and living God. They have an expectation of Christ's second coming. And if we are going to win the good fight for Christian living, We must put on the indispensable armor of faith, hope, and love. We can't leave home without it. Got to have faith, hope, and love every time we set foot out into the world. uh, Like what Dale Etowoye says about this, he said, Faith, hope, and love are no mere abstract concepts. They are the substance of the Christian's life. Saved through faith, we are brought to walk in love and are preserved in hope. Like a wall of fire, he says, they keep us secure in God's divine favor and help us grow in Christ's likeness. We dare not neglect them. We dare not neglect them. We dare not. There you go. Let me finish that. Top search results are faith, (laughs) hope, and love. That was nothing but the Lord. That was the Lord right there. Faith, hope, and love. And in in fact, that's a perfect segue in how i like to land this plane. Can I share a poem with you entitled Faith, Hope, and Love? Let, let, Let me do that since the Lord just gave me the cue. Let me just share this poem with you from John L. Stevens. Here's what it says. My faith is in my Jesus. My anchor is in him. When turmoil comes my way, his power is still within. He keeps me through the bad times. He guides me through the good. His love is always with me. On his promise, I have stood. My hope is in my Jesus. My life is in his hand. The hope of eternal life on his promises I will stand. The hope of joy in heaven, the hope of glory above, the hope that fills my soul today is because of his great love. My love comes from my Jesus and fills my heart today. His love is overflowing. I have love to give away. His love is still within me. His love is so divine. I kneel before my Savior. Grace and mercy is always mine. It's by faith hope, and love. I have come to him today. Can't have one without the others. There is no other way. My faith, I keep in Jesus. My hope, he will secure. His love is always with me. With all three, I will endure. The greatest Of these is love. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this triad of triumphal Christian living. We don't want to leave home without these things, Lord, because we know that when we enter into this dark world, there's no telling what we might face. And so, Lord, we want to live out this triad in our lives every day, individually and corporately as a church. We're thankful for four years, but we would pray that you would be with us, go out ahead of us for the next four years and 40 years and however much longer. Lord, you give us. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and how he begins it with commendation for the things that they were doing right. Allow us, Lord God, to model what they have done.